0: On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses Peter Gabriel II, Scratch. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands, album by album. I'm Joe Boclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends Ken Gregory and Paul Zotter, as we continue into the Peter Gabriel catalog covering Peter Gabriel 2, Scratch. All right, gentlemen, welcome to our second installment of our Peter Gabriel solo um, segment, or I should say our combined Peter Gabriel fish, that's fish with an F, um, segment. But uh, it's going to be pretty Peter Gabriel heavy here in the beginning. And um, so tonight, we're we're scheduled to talk about Peter Gabriel 2 or Scratch. But we were remiss last week. And so we have to take a quick step back and correct something. Not remiss. We were remiss. It didn't occur to me to look in... The revised and updated edition of "1001 <laughs> Albums You Must Hear Before You Die" to look for Peter Gabriel. One Carr, and yet, lo and behold, you're
1: kidding. Wait a second. <laughs>
0: Carr <laughs> made it into there. <laughs> Carr is in here, and you're... so I feel that we have to, <laughs> we have to go back and do the reading before we move on to scratch this week. Wait, how many Pink Floyd albums
2: did not make the the list of 1,001 albums? If Mm. I
0: recall correctly, there were three or four Pink Floyd albums. I I mean, I can look if you want me to. quickly. And what about Genesis? There was only a a couple of those in there, too, right? Well, Paul, you ask excellent questions. And if you'll give me just a moment, I will be able to tell you. So Pink Floyd had The Dark Side of the Moon, The Piper at the Gates of Dawn, The Wall, (laughs) and Wish You Were Here. All right, forget it. Now that you said that, it, all bets are off. It's fine.
2: <laughs> <laughs> just,
0: just, <laughs> just to complete the conversation, however, if we look at Genesis, if I can find them, Genesis has The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway and Selling England by the Pound.
1: Oh, Selling England is pretty amazing.
2: So Foxtrot was omitted, Duke was omitted. Yeah, Yeah, that's not important. Animals was omitted. Animals. Saucer oh, Full of Secrets yeah. omitted. But somehow, somehow, Peter Gabriel's first solo album makes it in.
0: I- indeed. And, and would uncanny. You like to, would you like to hear what they had to say? <laughs>
2: yes.
0: <laughs> <No. clears throat> Two years after leaving Genesis in 1975, Peter Gabriel launched his solo career with this eclectic set of nine songs that comprise Peter Gabriel One. Free from the tension and constraints which had restricted his creative development, he unleashed an avalanche of bottled-up ideas and flamboyant arrangements. Moribund the Burgermeister lays it on thick right from the outset. Deep jungle drums and warbly synths are just the first ingredients in the song's smorgasbord of prog-rock theatricality. Gabriel sings in a variety of vocal styles, including a rumbling growl as the evil Burgermeister. The song is strange but compelling. Next up is Salisbury Hill, Gabriel's first hit and one of the best and most enduring songs of his long career. Anchored by a bouncy acoustic guitar melody, the song gives a tangible feeling of hope and endless possibility. Its lyrics touch upon Gabriel's liberating departure from Genesis when he sings, quote, I was feeling part of the scenery, I walked right out of the machinery, end quote. Not surprisingly, all this diversity results in a few less Interesting genre exercises, like the Randy Newman-esque barbershop ditty Excuse Me, or the lengthy blues number Waiting for the Big One. But the album closes strong with Here Comes the Flood, a bombastic anthem that Gabriel would rework into an introspective piano ballad. Either way, it is a powerhouse. This album was just the beginning of Peter Gabriel's legendary success as a solo artist, but all the signs were already in place for great things to come here ends the reading so very exciting that wow so uh, my apologies for for not having <laughs> having the, the 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 presence of mind to have looked for that when we recorded last week's episode uh, but I, I how could you that. have even ever imagined that it might possibly be there <laughs> I mean, I just, I I actually went because I I knew that Peter Gabriel III was in there. So I kind of wanted to just refresh my memory. And when I looked it up, I'm like, are you kidding me? So. Well, I can support it on the basis
1: that the author sounds like a Salisbury fan and really doesn't reference that much else.
2: I I am surprised they didn't mention any kind of
0: Bruce Springsteen in there, but excellent. A good way to start. I was kind of glad that we had that because I've been working up for this episode and two days ago I had decided that I was going to have to open the episode with a an, an outright apology in that I was afraid that everything I was going to say about this album was going to sound very negative when in fact, I actually quite enjoy listening to this album. But it seemed like as I started to really... You know, dig in for this episode. Uh, everything I had to say was, well, this is kind of weird and this isn't great and everything else. And, you know, I was a little, I was a little concerned because at the same time, I, this album does kind of grow on you, I think, the more you listen to it. So, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, as often happens, you know, round about, you know, yesterday, when I'd listened to it enough, and yesterday actually i had I had pulled out my vinyl version and put that on, which always happened ah there were a couple of of key moments that just you know started to fall together, and everything suddenly came into place so um you know i'm 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 going to stand by the fact that I will just absolutely lose my shit next week over Peter Gabriel three because I still think Peter Gabriel three is. Phenomenal on so many different levels, and mm. quite frankly, I could say, like, if if Peter Gabriel three was was nothing more than snapshot, I could probably still say it. Um, I just there's there's so much good going on there, and I think it is it's exists on such a different plane from all the others, save maybe so. Mm. Um, that it's easy to to overlook this record, and you know some of the some of the things we talked about, you know, last week. I think you know it's more close. This album, Scratch, is probably more closely related to Car than it is to Melt. But it's it's still like I said, I I find it to be really really good. And another interesting aspect that I did, and I started this a little bit earlier over the weekend, Paul based on inspiration from you i also pulled out my vinyl version of plays live ah and so i started listening to that and and sort of trying to compare and contrast you know what i knew as you know the the studio versions of these songs or or the definitive versions with what you have experienced and it is interesting the the way all of that works and 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 i don't know when is the best time to talk about this again i think there's there's one track in particular next week that i do want to discuss the relationship between you know plays live and the studio version or maybe i can just put that as a as a bonus episode cuz we already talked too much as it is but what i was left with is plays live to me and and I haven't listened to it nearly enough. So if I'm wrong, please tell me. But it comes across almost as if the Peter Gabriel of of Peter Gabriel for Security and that band had written and recorded all these songs. You know?
2: Yeah. Uh, it that's a that's an amazing way of putting it because you know you you just said something that perked my ears up when you said you know you wanted to listen to Peter Gabriel's plays live so you could compare it. To the definitive versions on the albums. And I, and
0: <laughs> I said for my me, definitive versions. <laughs>
2: <laughs> You're right. For, for me, my, my definitive versions are Peter Gabriel's play live. And the funny part is, is that as produced as some of these songs are on, on these albums, like to me, the, the, the live version always sounds like the version to me. And I think you just nailed it. It's because they're playing it. Like the, like the same band playing all the songs. My first reaction to, to like putting this in again and listening was like, ah, oh, you know what? I'm going to start my own tribute band. It's going to be called at the intersection of Mercy and E Street. And it's going <laughs> to be all Peter Gabriel covers reimagined in the style of Bruce Springsteen and the E Street band. And I, I never, it. I never ever got that ever from listening to. Plays live. Never. Never yeah. like, never. And I agree with you. Scratch is closer to car than it is to three or four. And but it is it is a it is a very uh important sort of
0: bridge, if you will, from one to three. Oh, absolutely. The other aspect of this and, and the whole plays live thing, and this this is something an observation or a thought that I've had I've been carrying around for quite some time and and it has to do with a a bonus episode that i keep meaning to record that i just have not made the time to do so but at the heart of it, it, it as it pertains to this conversation is the fact that peter gabriel is n- has seemingly never been shy with i, I don't want to say monkeying because that doesn't sound very right with with altering the the structure of his songs to either you know play them live or whatever, yeah. Um, yeah. you know nothing is is sacred to him, and and he seems to be very good at keeping the central core of whatever the song is, while just imagine reinterpreting it in in vastly different ways, and mm-hmm. you know it. the 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 one that that really planted this idea for me was in your eyes. When we grew up, you know, In Your Eyes with Say Anything was just, it was massive. It was huge. You couldn't get away from it. And I think from very early on, in terms of playing live, he was always mixing that up a little bit and putting things in there that actually weren't in the studio recording or emphasizing things that were not emphasized in the studio recording. And that's with, you know, like the biggest hit he ever had, right? Yeah. Yeah when I was listening to Plays Live, he's always been doing that.
1: Yes. Yes. I know we're here to talk about Scratch, but I'm very vulnerable to this idea of talking about Plays Live, and I I just wanted to insert this idea sooner than later. Did it function as yes songs, wherein people maybe that didn't want to go back and purchase the entire Peter Gabriel catalog could... I plays live and totally understand Gabriel and totally be a fan.
2: I It's exactly the effect
1: it had for me. Beautiful. Hmm. Shall we? <laughs>
0: well, there, there's one other sort of high-level... Well, there are a couple of different high-level things that maybe I'd like to go into, but... Why don't we do the context and the the uh, the particular? Really? and then then I can get into my overarching things yeah. before we get into the songs.
2: Because so, we're, we're on fire right now. This we is we what happens when we start early. <laughs> this is this is
0: great. Kenny G.
1: Uh before the AARP witching hour. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so something in there at ten p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, we talked about the lolly gagging and the contemplation of Peter Gabriel uh, following his departure in the 1975 era, and and blossoming under the tutelage of Bob Ezrin in 1977. So I suppose you're asking yourselves, well, what on earth happened in the world of progressive rock in between uh, 1977's Car album and uh, Scratch? And that's uh, exactly what I'm here to talk about. Uh, that was February 77. Shortly thereafter, ELP released Works Volume 1. Anthony Phillips put out Geese and the Ghost, a little solo air. Brand X, Moroccan Roll. Uh, we got some Super Trap, Alan Parsons, I, Robot, Sticks, The Grand Illusion. Mm. Yes, did Go A Wing for the One. Uh, wow. Ruford goes solo. Rush does a farewell to Kings. Kansas does point of new return. Mm. Genesis. taking, uh, Kicking ass and taking names. Seconds out live. Queen does news of the world. I don't know who Barkley James Harvest is. And when I listen to him, it sounds like prog rock made from a paint by numbers kit. But, you know, there's got to be some depth in there. <laughs> I'm sure Barclay James Harvest has something to offer me at some point. It's just, it's just hard penetrating the surface. We bridge into 1978. We got some Manfred Mann, Frank Zappa, Dixie Dregs, Renaissance, UK self-titled, Genesis. And then there were three saga self-titled. Jethro Tull, David Gilmore, David Gilmore self-titled. Steve Hackett, please don't touch. Anthony Phillips still killing it. Why is he after the event? June 1978. Peter Gabriel. Number two or scratch. This is 1978. This is only this is only four months away from Tormato. I I know that was the first thing on your mind.
2: Actually, as much as that was on my mind, I was going to just remind our audience that this was also the year of of the highest amount of marijuana consumption in the united states so so peter gabriel had that going for him as well he did we have we ever linked to those stats i think we we've put it on facebook
0: at least once i think we're now i'll put it on again okay so as mentioned then peter gabriel 2 or scratch was released in june of 1978 it was produced by robert fripp Released mm. on the labels Charisma in the UK and Atlantic in North America. Uh, side note, we don't normally talk about the recording location, but this was recorded in the Netherlands, which I don't know if that's interesting or not, but it, it is. I find it interesting. Some, some, I, I had some fun little things going on with the musicians on this in the fact, and we'll get to that in just a second. So musicians on this, Peter Gabriel, um, is credited with vocals, Hammond organ, piano, and synthesizer on various tracks. Robert Fripp has electric and acoustic guitars and is credited with Frippertronics. Um, we can maybe get into that. Tony Levin has bass guitar, Chapman stick, string bass, and the recorder arrangements. Now I think it's, I
2: think it's safe to say that Tony Levin has settled
0: in nicely into the Peter Gabriel camp. Yeah. Yeah. He is. Now this is this is where things get really interesting, and I think this is the, one of the points that you were making earlier. Paul Roy Batan or Bitten, I don't know how to say his name, is on keyboards on most of these, um, accompanied by Larry Fast. And Wikipedia lists Todd um, Cochran. However, hmm. if you and, and I was shocked when I pulled out my my sleeve for my vinyl version today and it lists as on very first line um beate on keyboards and i was like what the fuck huh and and that is a an an alias that todd cochran has used or uses when he's a studio musician so Hmm. i don't know you know why the change but there you go so we got three of those we have Jerry Marotta steps in on drums. Uh, Sid McGinnis plays electric guitar, acoustic guitar, and steel guitar and mandolin. And Tim Capello plays saxophone, George Marge, recorder. And Je- John Timms is credited with Insects. Wow. On Mother of Violence. So the track listing is On the Air. DIY, Mother of Violence, A Wonderful Day in a One-Way World. White Shadow, Indigo, Animal Magic, Exposure, which is um, the only song credited with uh, Peter Gabriel and Robert Fripp, Perspective, and Home Sweet Home. Peter Gabriel is the second solo album by English singer-songwriter Peter Gabriel, released in 1978. The album is the second of four with the same title. It was produced by guitarist Robert Fripp. The album did not sell as well as the first Peter Gabriel, but reached number 10 in the UK. In the US, the album was titled Peter Gabriel Roman Numeral 2. The album is also referred to as Scratch, referring to the album cover by Hypnosis. Music streaming services currently refer to it as Peter Gabriel 2 Scratch. That's all the particulars we have in terms of, of this particular record. In well, of Roy Bitten. Um, yeah.
1: Right. He plays with the East. E Street Band. That's correct.
3: correct.
0: Okay. And, and and what's really funny, like, I didn't realize that until I was looking at the wiki page for this, and it talks about Roy Bitten, and the E Street Band connection is like, huh, that's interesting. And yet, every time that the pianos kind of leapt out at me, and I went and looked, it was actually Todd Cochran playing. Fascinating. So, mm. <laughs> you know, I, I do think that that general feel and connection is there. And it's very interesting. Uh,
1: Yeah, my understanding was that Pete wanted that feeling much earlier. He saw Springsteen in London in 75. So he had to wait a couple of years to get his hands on Roy.
0: Just the Wikipedia page for this record sent me down a host of different rabbit holes. American rock keyboardists, not the, the, the least of them. But it led me, like this idea of Frippertronics led me to Robert Fripp's uh, Wikipedia page. And so this this was stunning to me. So I want to read something from Robert Fripp's Wikipedia page. Under the section of Guitar Technique, it says... Fripp began playing guitar at the age of 11. When he started, he was tone deaf and had no rhythmical sense. Weaknesses which led him to later comment, quote, music so wishes to be heard that it sometimes calls on unlikely, unlikely characters to give it voice, end quote. He was also naturally left-handed, but opted to play the guitar right-handed. Robert Fripp is my musical spirit animal. Holy shit! Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Shit! That's me, although I'm much older than 11. But still, I mean, you know, there's hope for us all. So I I looked at these two keyboardists, Todd Cochran and and Roy Bitten, to sort of see where and what they did. Now, Todd Cochran's resume is not nearly as long as, as Roy's is, but he does have some very interesting people that he played with, including, besides Peter Gabriel, um, Stanley Clark shows up, and it looks like my picture didn't take, so I don't know who else he played with. I want to say it was one of the, some jazz musician that I know of, which I don't know of very many, so I I, I want to say it was more sort of in that line than maybe the standard. But if you look at... Maybe Maynard Ferguson? Maynard Ferguson, there you go. So, but if you look at Roy Bitten's line... Tell me if any of this sounds familiar at all. Uh, John Bon Jovi, David Bowie, Jackson Brown, Tracy Chapman, Chicago, Dire Straits, Bob Dylan, Ian Hunter, Meatloaf, Stevie Nicks, Bob Seeger, Patty Smythe. Uh, I mean, we've heard these names come up before, and here they are again. It's just, it's fascinating. It's like he's a part of a club somehow.
1: Yeah. Well, it's a bit of a new wave club, too. Yeah,
0: a Jersey-ish
2: taste as well definitely east coast yeah he uh also later in the years nelly furtado shania twain even
0: and and which led me to well i have to look at sid mcginnis right because what what did the sid mcginnis do i haven't heard of this guy warren Zevon, ashford and simpson barry manilow all right carly simon dire straits again the Sisters of Mercy of all bands. Wow. Lori Anderson, David Lee Roth, oh. <laughs> Bob Dylan, David Bowie, Leonard Cohen, and Paul Simon and Simon and Garfunkel. So, you know, we've got there's, – there's a lot of different influences sort of coming to roost here in this record. Now, all of that is interesting enough and and i know that i sound like a complete homer and it was never my intention to bring this up as often as i have but i cannot escape it and that is either the influence of or by the tubes yes and yes. and and specifically when we talk about this I I'm I'm keeping my focus on The Tubes first 3 albums which you know when I came into The Tubes in in you know the uh the late 80s early 90s The, the Tubes had undergone the same transformation as everyone else but when you go back and you listen to the first album Young and Rich And especially now, and even by extension, their live album that came out after now, it has this decidedly different feel to it. And that feel manifests itself several times very strongly in this record. And I thought, that's kind of a cheeky thing to say, really? But I went back and checked the timeline. And in fact, the Tubes, Young and Rich, and Now, all were released prior to this record. And
1: in fact, Gabriel ended up playing New Wave and almost punk festivals. I think Nev Worth was one of mm. them. He was on a bill with the Tubes. So what we, we talk about Gabriel going solo, wearing a track suit to support the first album, shaving his head shortly after the second album for that tour, and taking on this... Aggressive, maybe Americanized, maybe new wave-ish look. And he's competing head-to-head with a lot of these new wave cats. In fact, if you go into the um Richard McPhail book, which is absolutely wonderful, or the uh Without Frontiers, Life and Music of Peter Gabriel book that I've been reading, you know, you hear about the management at Charisma, which we didn't really touch on last time. Tony Stratton Smith was an amazing presence for Genesis and Peter, but he didn't understand New Wave. Peter's manager, Gail Coulson, wanted to sign people like Elvis Costello, want, wanted to be a part of this movement, and Stratton Smith didn't get it. And luckily, you know, folks like Peter did, and not only
0: played into it, but succeeded in that realm
1: which is amazing
0: yeah and, and and we're ultimately able to incorporate you know aspects of it and like i said it the 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 prog connection to the early tubes i i always thought was a complete construct but it keeps popping up so you know and and at some point i need to do i'll probably end up doing a um a solo section on those early albums because I just, I find it to be so fascinating. I just want to see what I can learn. But I think we may have an offshoot podcast called Six Degrees of the Tubes coming. <laughs> is that, is that uh, before or after we do our Joe Reed's Fish? <laughs> mm,
1: mm, mm. Oh, okay. I found the list from uh, Gail Colson. Uh, she wanted to sign the Boomtown Rats, Elvis Costello, and Devo, and Tony didn't get the bands. <laughs> <laughs> they had the money,
0: <laughs> but nope, he just didn't get it. That's funny. It's always sort of gratifying, Ken, when I whip out one of these these seeming non sequiturs, and you're like, "Oh yeah, absolutely." It's like, "Oh, cool, outstanding."
2: So I just just for the record. I am never prepared for a Tubes connection to anything that we've been listening to, ever.
0: Well, and and so let's ask the question. Have either of you ever heard any of those three albums? No. Mm, In passing, maybe.
2: (laughs) Is She's a Beauty on one of those albums? Not even close. (laughs) (laughs) Then the answer would be no
0: the answer would be no.
2: Okay. I I I will participate in that in that uh off segment um short segment uh Joe just so that I can become educated. Okay. On the tubes.
0: I'm down with that. So I think that pretty much covers all of my general topics on uh on oh no. Well, I guess we'll get into it here in the first track. But any anything else sort of generally speaking about well, this record?
1: Yeah, I want to concur with you, Joe, and I'm I'm pulling up this Without Frontiers book, and I found the, uh, I think it's Nebworth concert, but it was billed as n- not another bill- boring old Nebworth. The full bill featured Peter playing alongside the Tubes, Zappa, Boomtown, mm. Rockpile, the Solid Cinders. I mean... Just, just, just seeing the tubes on that list speaks volumes. Listening through some
2: time, and it's funny that we were just having the conversation about all of the musicians involved and all the interconnections, and you know, it's obvious that you know Peter is and always has been you know ingrained in the musical community around him. I said it probably more politely at the beginning of of tonight's palaver, but. You know, one and two are just practices for the masterpiece. And in a sense, three and four are the, you know, the springboard into the masterpieces, if you will, at least in my opinion, um, not to take anything away from three and four. However, there's a, it occurs to me that, I mean, he came off the lamb lies down on Broadway, which, for some unknown reason, is, is, is held in such high regard over the last several decades. Is it possible that, you know, he's just hanging out with his friends and his friends of his friends and friends of his friends and his friends and just being as creative as possible and just trying to figure out who, you know, what's the next creative thing for himself? Like in the ultimate, I mean, we've talked about the desire and the need to constantly create. Are these records just sort of that ultimate expression by him of just, you know, I've already done this just phenomenally amazing stuff. Let's just see what else I can come
0: up with. I think it has a feel like that. You know, the, the fact that he seems to be exploring these different corners of the musical world and seeing what he likes and what he doesn't like. And in some regards, if I'm being cynical, what he can get away with. Right. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, and and, and I think he found enough that and i th- i think that has a lot to do with with why 3 is so powerful because by all accounts and and i haven't i i haven't seen or read anything specific about the recording of that yet other than something we came across way back when it seems that he went into three with a very specific idea. I want to do this. Mm. And, and he did that. And, and and that may have come across, you know, perhaps differently than he would have intended or, or whatever else the case may be. But, but I don't get that same feeling from these first two records. It's like, well, let's try this. And, oh, it's almost Mm. to go back to your artist analogy. It's almost like, you know, publishing his his uh his notebook right yeah you know, yeah when he's he's sitting in a coffee house somewhere and he's like huh, what and he scratches something down okay cool you know and and then he does it again but it, it yeah I, I agree it doesn't have that sort of coherent deliberate feel to it yes yeah. which goes back to your early point which is why it plays live is
2: so provides that co- like yeah. cohesive piecing together like you mentioned ken Sort of like the yes songs of the uh,
3: of Peter Gabriel.
0: Does Seconds Out provide that same vehicle for Genesis? Because mm. Genesis is ever changing. I don't know mm. that it does. I mean, Yes is too, but
2: Seconds Out is the one with the Phil singing Foxtrot, not Foxtrot.
0: Supper's ready. Uh, supper's
2: ready, right? It is yes. Yeah, and that. That's an interesting point. It certainly sort of recalibrates the band yeah, for everyone. But you're right. It is sort of like, hey, if you're just jumping on board, here's a bunch of great stuff.
1: Yes. Peter is one to hang out with his pals. It was said maybe by Aunt Phillips or someone that he had to go to America to work with Ezrin. Well, Toronto, actually, I guess. But um, he, he had to go to North America to work on that first album just to break the uh chain or to you know shake things up a bit recording in the netherlands is uh still a little bit removed maybe slightly closer to home
2: uh how many great albums were recorded in in the netherlands
0: (laughs) that sounds like a bonus episode
1: (laughs) well (laughs) we have to do it live and remote though from from the netherlands i mean this is a great segue this is no longer Bob Ezrin's Peter Gabriel. Mm. We have a coup d'etat, if you will. Mm. Right. Robert yeah. Fripp was, you know, speaking ever so politely, but negatively about Ezrin. And Peter thought, oh, fine. OK, let's see what Fripp can do. And, and Fripp takes the reins. And we usually don't talk about studios or producers to that extent. But, Joe, you are you are already broaching the subject.
0: That's the other sort of aspect to this. And and quite frankly, I am, I'm disappointed, you know, life being what it is that I haven't had, you know, the unlimited time and opportunity to dig into this because, you know, clearly Robert Fripp's fingerprints are all over this. And when you hear that Robert Fripp is the producer, and if you listen to this, just, you know on the surface what does it sound like it's not the greatest production job you've ever heard in the world but most things coming out in 1978 apparently weren't the greatest production job in the world either indeed <laughs> so so you know it i and, and i i had this thinking at the time it, i've got this i've got this thing for alfa romeos right and <laughs>
1: Like and the it, one fixed up.
0: And and it's, it's very funny when you, like think, the two that are in your garage well, right the now. The two that are in my garage right <laughs> this second. So when you think about, when you think about cars of a particular time, right? So if you, if you think about, if you were in, you know, 1979 and the Alfa Romeo had their, their sports sedan and, um, BMW had whatever model they had, and probably Mercedes had a model, and there was probably a Volkswagen, you know, variant and everything else. And in 1980, you probably would have had arguments with your friends as to why the Mercedes looked like shit and the Alpha looked great, or the BMW or was whatever, you know. But if you fast forward 30 years and you put them all next to each other, you go, holy shit, they all look exactly the fucking same. <laughs> 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 the the grills are different wow. but all the proportions are the same and you know mm. it's just it, it it's funny how that happens and and so that's what i think a lot to do here you know with with the the sound production but what i don't really know and, and so i i hopefully i'm not going to spend a whole lot of time bagging on for instance how shitty the drums sound but what what is unknown to me is what role is Robert Fripp playing and what does he have his own agenda? Or is, is this a, a sort of simpatico collaboration between Peter and Robert that just doesn't last? Uh, you know, what, what is actually driving this collaboration? And I don't honestly know. And, and as I mentioned last episode, I don't know enough about Robert Fripp and his career to know where this fits in with his greater montage. So I don't really know how it fits together, but I I think maybe there's some aspect of that that bears investigation that I just haven't been able to do.
1: Mm. um, Per the lore, Fripp cut away all of the extra fake reverb. So you say the drums sound like crap, but this was part of Peter's evolution into the new wave and punk. I mean, Peter even, you know, saw the Ramones at some point. He, he was very hip to know what was going on. And he was hip to production. And he allowed Fripp to go bare bones at the expense of some instruments, but at the benefit of others. And it's a much more honest sound, which on the trajectory from two scratch to, you know, three to four is, uh, beneficial so so he he knows he no longer sounds like a kiss album or an Alice Cooper album. He sounds like part of this cutting edge scene. So I I am personally going to give a thumbs up to the Frippatronics approach. Okay. Well, I think
2: he was just having a man crush on Tony Levin. Is <laughs>
0: <laughs> my and personal that's understandable. opinion I mean,
2: mm-hmm.
0: shit because the bass sounds pretty fucking amazing in a lot of this album. The, the bass really does sound amazing. And and that's I'm glad I'm glad that Tony kind of popped up because it, it does show up in my notes, but I had made the the comment last episode that on Peter Gabriel 1 or Carr, you know, we didn't have a fully formed Tony Levin. It wasn't like you listen to it and you go, "Oh, listen to Tony Levin." And here you get more of that and and the sound is just delightful and and yeah and tony's you know presentation of himself is is starting to develop into what you're going to just absolutely i'm going to fall in love with and it it just is it's just meaty and lovely
2: it's almost like the first album they just had him they just had him in as a studio musician and he was just doing his thing and and then he had them over here the gents over for tea one afternoon and they were all just hanging out in like Tony Levin's basement, and someone was like, "Tony, what's what's that over there?" And he's like, "Hi, hey, this is this is my stick. Check it out." And he mm. starts playing it. They're like, "Hey, what's that over there?" And he starts playing this, and all of a sudden, they're like, "Holy shit, <laughs> <laughs> dude! You got to play on the next album." <laughs> is there any stories like that in that book, Ken? That that talk about Tony Levin?
0: Not yet. We need okay. a we need a definitive book on uh, <laughs> Tony Levin. Sorry. <laughs> We really do. And, and it is sort of like that, right? Because Tony Levin, by all accounts, seems to have, you know, a wide variety of interests and talents. And, hmm. and I think it's spectacular as you, you know, as Peter Gabriel starts to develop, Tony Levin becomes an integral part of that. He, yeah. He weaves Tony into the, the very basic fabric of what he does. And and I just think
1: that's cool. Tony's employee of the month. I mean, he, he really kind of nails it. And I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Peter goes through five guitarists in the space of one Tony Levin. So hats off to this guy. Uh, there's a quote from Larry Fest, you know, about his duration, you know, being four albums or whatever and then coming to an end. Um, you know, it's amazing that Tony survived all of the different sounds and all the different errors of Peter. So, I mean, he, he just nails it month after month after month. Not, not sure why, but he did that with, uh, with rip too.
0: Right. Yeah. Uh, Tony yeah. Tony must be one of those people where, uh, you know, I, I, I'm going to assume from the outside and, you know, maybe we need to reach out to Tony Levin and, and get the inside story. But from the outside, Jesus. I'm just going to assume that Tony Levin is fantastic to work with. And why wouldn't you want to work with him? (laughs) He he makes his
1: quarterly calls.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Give him the parking spot. It's all good. So, On the Air. Now, On the Air was a song that I was, for years, many, 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 many years, willing to just Essentially, overlook. Yeah, on the air, great, whatever, no big deal. But when you guys brought up this idea of mozo, and mm. it's like, wait a second, what? And you know, suddenly I had, I, I was forced to sort of pay more attention. Now again, and and Paul, you had, I think it was you or one of you had sent out the link to that sort of. Um, it, it seems like it's, it's a. a almost comprehensive overview of the mozo story which Mm -hmm. i'll be honest i have not completely finished but i because i i want to be able to go in and listen to all of the songs where it's referenced and see how it all fits together i'm embarrassed to say that i'm here i am hosting a progressive rock podcast for two and a half years i've been listening to this music for you know the better part of my life and up until last week i had never heard of mozo and this this you know underlying thread of connectivity in peter gabriel's music and i was like wow well that's really something so well joe you shouldn't feel terrible about
2: that because even the editors of 1001 albums you must hear before you die that included his first album and there had made no mention of it at all so i i feel like i feel like you get a pass on that one well that's good I mean, I I had never heard of it until Ken mentioned it in our last uh our
0: last palaver. Okay, so well, kudos, go. Ken. We're, we're we're all in the same boat, but yeah. it is interesting, right? That that this is is out there, and it's a it's a it's an interesting idea, an interesting sort of character concept, if you will. And, and I'm very much looking forward to you know dabbling around in that and seeing what what is there or what isn't there. I I don't know how I feel at this point. Um, because I, I like I said I haven't had the time to really dig into it, but yeah. on the air apparently is is shall we call it the origin story of mozo? I guess mm, the earliest documented
1: instance of mozo. Sure,
2: I'm just amazed at this song in its definitive with finger quote version. It is like such a straddle between the E Street Band and Rush, and <laughs> and and it's Rush. Like, it's like future Rush. Like, yeah. it's like Rush. What did you say, Ken? Rush is doing Farewell to Kings in this time frame, right? This is
0: Rush, Grace Under Pressure Rush kind of stuff. It's amazing to me, the, the the variety of music going on. One of the notes that I have, Paul, I don't think you'll get this. Ken, I think you will. And it does fit in with the whole new wave thing that you were talking about as well. There's a part here, I think somewhere in the the latter half of the song, that feels to me very reminiscent or in evocative of in excess the swing one <laughs> thing particular and it's just like wow that's kind of weird and 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 paul when you were describing the street band's meets rush i that in some ways also describes that era of in i think <laughs> so it, it, when you said that it was like oh well that's a great way to say it right mm.
1: So Here Comes the Flood is part of the Mozo story, but you're saying, although that comes earlier chronologically, you're saying that On the Air is actually more of the origin story of what is Mozo.
0: Exactly. Yeah, it, it seems to be, and again, I, when I look at the lyrics and, and I, I un, what little I understand about the Mozo story, it seems to me like this is the quote-unquote reality of the person who... Sends himself out over the shortwave radio. Now, why a homeless guy has a shortwave radio, I don't exactly know. Uh, I, I've got to figure this out. Didn't everybody have a shortwave radio
2: in 1978?
0: Probably, yeah.
2: And a bag of Goonja. <laughs> <laughs> I,
0: I don't know. I, I, I don't even
2: know if Goonja is a, a, is, a, is a slang term for pot. but
0: It sounds like it should be. Just go
2: with it. It should be, if it isn't.
1: Something a bit more tangible and a bit more sober. It's just that Peter, being a creative artist by profession, art blooms after the working day is done. And that parallels with, um, shortwave radio performing better at night than it does during the day. Ah. So, so you need not introduce illicit substances to to make the analogy that's that's what i have to offer <laughs>
2: <laughs> Oh, <Both> Ken Sherman <laughs> i feel like i feel like ken is just like tolerating me tonight <laughs>
1: <laughs> ah now we can smoke the mozo
0: again i mean my my attention to this song is is very recent and mm-hmm. Much like this album as a whole, I think there's more here than I originally perhaps gave it credit for. And it just, it, it's an interesting sort of amalgam that we have going on here. And the fact that the story may or may or may not tie into other things, I think is interesting. Now, with precious few exceptions, and I just, I was just reminded of, of two other overarching things that we need to sort of point out here. And, and it's interesting. We set this up this segment as a parallel between Peter Gabriel and Fish. So one of the parallels that we have here is, holy fuck, why is Peter Gabriel singing quite so high on this record? Mm. I mean, Mm. he's really got, he's got the, the nuts vice cramped down pretty, pretty hard here. And he's really going after it, much like Fish did in his early career. Although at that point, Fish didn't know how to sing. Peter Gabriel should know how to sing by this point, so I find that to be interesting. The other interesting parallel, for a different reason, is the fact that virtually none of the lyrics on this album knock me out of my chair at any point. And that's that's interesting to me. On the Air is one of those. It's a very straightforward representation of you will of a story as i as at least as i'm reading it right now and it's not a particularly interesting representation of the story to me
1: i grazed um, something about a review that said that the uh, lyrics were actually a bit depressed but the music was so up so um, Mm. shall we settle for sonic dissonance
3: yeah
2: I'm I'm okay with that. I think that works. For me the, the magic of that song is just the rhythm. Um score. Cool. You know, where where the where on the air gets accented and you know, it's it's that's that's where the fun is for me.
0: Now mm-hmm. when 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 it comes in right, you've got that, that sort of little hook that leads into the verses, and when that kind of digs in, you know, you're like, ooh, that's kind of fun. But Yeah. Yeah. I miss it when the crowd isn't shouting on the air, you know, in between. <laughs> it's like something's wrong. And, 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 and Paul, to your earlier point, Tony Levin really does sound pretty, pretty shit. Yeah. Yeah.
2: As well as DIY, where he's the, basically the only thing worth listening to in that whole track. Uh-huh. Cause to your point, Joe, the production is quite lacking and there's, just, there's a certain level of urgency that is not present. In the, this track, that I feel is you know present in the, when I think about this song, even like if I'm walking down the the street singing it to myself, there's a certain level of urgency in it that is missing from the recording. But the bass sounds
0: delicious, and it's interesting um that you bring that up, and I guess we can slide into to DIY because you're absolutely right. You've got Tony Levin, and there's sort of a a piano line sitting sort of yeah. immediately behind behind the baseline which is a little out of of kilter with what you would normally expect but this sort of production arrangement does speak very very prominently to where things are going to go when on 3 and 4 specifically peter starts flipping around and taking all those those rhythm Aspects that are normally in the back and Mm bringing them way up front into your face. Yeah. And and, and it's interesting. I I never thought of it until you just said that as Ken rocks out, presumably listening to it. (laughs) (laughs) But I wonder if if that was a happy accident here. And one of those things (laughs) where Peter said, you know what? That was kind of cool. Let's do that again. I, I don't know. It's just I'm thinking out loud.
1: Okay, DIY never really hit me in real time. I mean, none of this music, Prague in general, didn't hit us in real time. We're all playing catch-up in this podcast. But, I mean, truly, DIY was a late find, a uh, very late find for me. And now I adore it and I get it. But But as you say, something either in the production or in the song itself falls flat, but that was reflected in the charts. It didn't chart, and yet it was supposed
0: to be a hit. So we talk about charting, and, and you know, Ken, you're always really good about sort of pointing out those things that we would have been exposed to via our Philadelphia rock radio going growing up, even if we weren't aware of the greater context. This is one of those songs that showed up on one of my brother Dave's mixtapes. So presumably... At some point, MMR and YSP would have played this. Maybe not as much as Shock the Monkey or. Oh, they loved it. Yeah, I, I don't remember, but but yeah, I mean, so it would have been around for us to uh, yeah. experience.
1: Yeah, it was it was, it was absolutely around. I mean, I mean, let let's just say one two one three four five one two one three four five one two one three four five. I mean, that's a chorus. You're scaring me.
3: You're sc- <laughs>
2: Yeah. And what is at the top of the charts this year? You got like shadow dancing by Andy Gibb, night fever by the Bee Gees, right? Production wise and just like toe tapping wise, it's a lot more accessible.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm just going to throw out another bullshit hypothesis, meme, whatever that, that, that may or may not show up in the play for later, but all this effort into odd time and the only part of the song. That truly soothes the soul is the middle bridge in four four. The can't think any all whatever. Yeah, yeah. I mean that part is absolute magic, but you have to earn that part. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's not just an odd time that kind of sticks to itself. It, it it's like these jerky segments, and it, it's a wonderful tutorial for getting into King Crimson, but it's not necessarily. Uh, a, a way to to make a lot of uh, mass appeal.
2: Yeah, I think it's housed in the production, you know, because it's a highlight of plays live. Mm-hmm. Cool. I mean, clocking in at two thirty
0: five, it really was poised for greatness. <laughs> <laughs> so it's poised for greatness, right on the edge of "Mother of Violence." "Mother of Violence" is one of those songs when I when I started listening to this this record, who knows when M- mother of violence is an earworm it it just it gets into my head and it won't go away once it's in there, which is interesting because it's you know it's it's not it's not anthemic necessarily it's not bombastic it's you're you know but it it just gets in there and it it works for me and it disquiets me at the same time. It's very easy to sort of understand the the underlying message here. You know, fear is the mother of violence. You know, it, it's hmm. it, it's it's a worldview that you know Yoda would certainly ascribe to. What? No laughs from the from the the gallery. Uh, there, that's not funny. <laughs> it's absolutely true. I don't... <laughs> I mean it's not it's not often we cross our uh, our nerd streams in the same episode, Yeah. There, but, there you but, go. Was you know, well just, done. It's one of those things that, you know, it's just like, oh, okay, I get it. So, I, yeah. I I understand it. I I appreciate it. I think in in a way it's hauntingly beautiful. And, you know, much like we talked about in the last episode how Here Comes the Flood reinterpreted as one of these sort of, you know, piano vocal duet type scenarios becomes more powerful, you know, I think I think maybe Mother of Violence doesn't quite achieve that, but it's in the same neighborhood. So it's a little too choral for me. Like the
2: piano, mm. I mean it's beautiful. Roy Roy Bitten or Baton playing his ass off and it sounds sounds wonderful, but it it is, you know, when you think about the reimagining of Here Comes the Flood. It's, it's not like a virtuoso type piano. Right. It's, uh, it's, it's very like singer songwriter style. And, and this seems more choral to me where, you know, you'd be singing like a madrigal over, over some fancy piano playing. Right. A little too fancy for me is, is kind of what I'm trying to say.
1: Well, do you, do you remember that every other piece in junior high choir was arranged by somebody named Randall Thompson? Yes, I do.
2: I, I think I had a whole Randall Thompson book in college to sing through.
1: This is one of those stock kind of piano. Yes. Thank you, Ken. Randall Thompson orchestrated. <laughs> yes. I mean, I mean, gorgeous, but simply not taking chances.
0: Mm. So in the middle or the back half, whatever it is, when that weird buzzing sound comes in. What yeah. the f- is that? I thought that was a Friptronics. And it probably is um it 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 sounds sort of guitar generated, but it is just profoundly unsettling that yeah. that sound, which again, I get it it's probably intended to be profoundly unsettling but yeah jiminy Christmas it has no business being in nineteen seventy eight that's for sure it really doesn't and and the other thing and and I think this is where this song kind of doesn't overwhelm you is it doesn't and it just sort of evaporates. Yeah. And you're kind of like, oh, what? Oh, I guess we're done. And where it goes to, I'm not a huge fan, so. It's like a Paul Simon song from the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> the next <laughs> tune. Mm-hmm. And all of this sounds very negative. I enjoy it in its own way. It's just, for me, this album isn't going to start for another two tracks. True. Have we
1: segued to a wonderful day
0: in a one-way world? We have indeed. This song, in particular, according to my notes, is is really where the the drum production is terrible. The drums, as I describe them here, in capitalized sound flabby. Okay. It's a different song. It, but this is where you start to get some of that that early tubes type. I don't know if it's influence or, you know, whatever. But there are, there are sort of aspects of this that are, are like that. I, what is this song about? I, I haven't been able to sort of put my finger on it. I don't really know. It reminds me of Terrapin
1: Station, a year before, 1977, July. It's so weird. Peter is a very small version of Peter. He's a whispering munchkin version of of Peter. We talk about Hobbit shit. Well, this is fairy shit. The <laughs> guitar is small, the guitar is small, the voice is small. It's like it's it, it's almost a parody of the weird overproduced nineteen seventy-seven Grateful Dead. Love the song Terrapin Station, but there are just elements in and out of that album that focus in on that small voice, small kind of trippy thing that Garcia did with his voice. And it's not suitable for Peter.
0: I like it. I mean, I like your observations in the fact that, you know, I've never been able to fully articulate why I don't really care for this song, but I think maybe you've hit the nail on the head. It's just smallness. (laughs) This song is
2: fun to just sort of listen to and let your mind go because there's so much shit going on. And as small as everything in is... Shoo, the bass is still thumping away. <laughs> um, and, and it's like, because it's not boomy and like really loud and like, it's just like this. <laughs> I picture little bunny rabbits when I listen to this song. I don't know why. Maybe it's the smallness of the production, Ken, but I just feel like, like everyone's dressed in a little bunny costume, you know?
1: <laughs> Agreed. Could be the keyboard sound too. I don't know. <laughs> which, which makes the, Transition into White Shadow that much. (laughs) White Shadow sounds like Band in a Box Steely Dan to me when it kind of jumps in there. With the exception of a little bit of trippy Larry Fast synth work. Yeah. I don't know what the idea is. Like, these last two songs can potentially make
0: someone stop listening to the rest of the album, which is a Mm. shame. It's true. Are you saying White Shadow will make people stop listening to the album? Or are you talking about Mother of Violence and uh, Wonderful Day? Uh, Well, Mother of
1: Violence, you know, I give it a pass because it it does have pure beauty. And it's just an honest song. Uh, And Jill contributed to the lyrics, so it has some kind of historical significance there. But A Wonderful Day in a One-Way World and White Shadow really detract from the mission of Gabriel through this period.
0: Really? See, I absolutely love White Shadow. This, for me, is where huh. things start to take off.
3: Oh,
1: okay.
0: Whoa, Paul, you got to be the tiebreaker. Yeah.
2: <laughs> you know, the production is at least better than A Wonderful Day, but... I, I think I would probably have to, to, you know, lean towards Ken's thoughts on this. Like, like every time I hear this song, I just, I kind of hear it like, mm, you know, still trying to shed that Genesis kind of uh, stuff, which might be unfair. Here's the problem. Anytime I hear anything that reminds me or th- makes me think of earlier Genesis, I immediately think of where Genesis is and they're just ahead of this. So, so- and, and I, and I shouldn't be listening to things with that perspective, but I can't help it. It's
0: what I, I do. It, it's a fascinating point, Paul, because there's there's one point, and I don't have it marked down. I think it's an in Indigo, but it, it could potentially be in White Shadow. It's in one of those two songs. There's like probably 10 or 20 seconds that sounds like it was lifted right off of either And Then There Were Three or Duke. Mm.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: It kind of comes and you're like, wait, what's that? And then it's gone. But it's forcibly reminiscent of of something of three man genesis early three man genesis it is it's striking when it shows up but it's very fleeting at the same time there is a middle section in white
1: shadow that has kind of the 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 breathy uh spacious um mellotron sound possibly of uh in white shadow that 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 would take me into a yeah and a...
0: and that might be it yeah, yeah, and that's what I like about White Shadow. There there are a couple of different things that I personally like about, about this song. It has the different sections. You get sort of different flavors throughout all of it, and I think it flows together pretty well. I like the intro. I think it's it's very good the way it sort of builds in. Um, throughout this song, I think you start to get more of, of Tony Levin, which is absolutely wonderful, especially at the guitar solo to the end. That whole section is is exceptional to me and it very much this is probably maybe you know paul you may want to rethink your your willingness to sign up to the side project because this this song is probably the closest alignment to the the first tubes record mm. um there's there's a track called up from the deep on the first tubes record that you know a lot of this is sort of you know, uh, very reminiscent of in terms of you know the the instrument sounds and and the songwriting and and everything else. Um, but I do think like when you get into that solo section, Tony Levin really starts to to flex his muscles a lot, which is yeah. very very cool when he does that. And I just you know, I and I also find the 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 chorus, such as it is, that that hook just to be exceptional for me it's it's really short but i just i love it i don't even know what the hell it means but i don't huh. really care i just i absolutely love it and so overall i find this song to be quite transporting but that's me as cool as it is it's
2: it's for some strange reason it's very unsettling to me to to hear like a shredding uh guitar solo with the with the you know the pickup selector in the in the neck position it's just for, and a Peter Gabriel song. It's just, <laughs> it's just bizarre. Like you don't, you never hear that. Yeah, that is that is pretty different. You're right. And I should be celebrating it, but instead, my mind is closed,
0: <laughs> like an early wrapped Christmas gift. So now we can we can move into Indigo. Is this? I forget if we had one earlier, but is this the first time Peter Gabriel uses the the mantra approach? Where we get that going away, which kind of bangs into your head with the piano sitting, you know, right on top of it. And it's kind of like, Oh, that's kind of cool. Mm -hmm. I did not notice. Didn't think about that either. The other thing, and and this is, this is one of the places where I will, I will call out the lyrics specifically, because if you look at this, he actually has the, the, the rhyme is internal. So, so the rhyme occurs before the end of each line, which I think is, is kind of fun. And he, he maintains that throughout. So it's not like it's, it's, it's a throwaway. Like, you know, once or twice he adds something extra onto the line. That was the way he constructed it. And, and that sort of, you know, leapt out at me as I was looking at these lyrics. I'm like, oh, that's very hmm. cool. I like the way he did that.
1: Mm. That's why we palaver. I would never have noticed that.
0: I think I'm just forever distracted
2: by the recorders on, on this song. They're beautiful.
0: I was going to say, do you like them? Yeah, because yeah, I'd like a mix of just them, please. Actually, and that's so funny, right? Because growing up, when we grew up in, yeah. <laughs> in the American school system, right the, the the recorder holds a very special and not particularly fond place in our hearts. In that, what is it? Fifth grade, I think, fifth or fourth grade, yeah. You know, Every child is is forced to buy a recorder and every child will be exposed to music and learn how to play the recorder. And it's it's a it's a god awful way to to force children to experience this. And I mean, I understand why you pick the recorder. It's pretty hard to fuck it up. But (laughs) fourth and fifth (laughs) graders can fuck it up. Yeah. And and it's not so it's not like you ever think of the recorder as anything beautiful. Well, Well, that's that's such a great point, because they give us those fucking plastic
2: pieces of garbage that just sound exactly like that. They sound terrible. And I remember like after like I took to the recorder very well. It was right up my alley. You know, it was like one note a finger. You didn't have to really think too hard about anything. (laughs) And I really enjoyed it. And one of my sisters, I think it was my uh, eldest sister, Deb. Played the flute. And I think for whatever reason, she had a wooden recorder. So when I found the wooden recorder, I would always, I would take my plastic one to school, but I would always play her wooden one at home because it sounded wonderful. Wow. sounded wonderful.
0: Interesting. I had no idea because I was going to say these sound absolutely lovely. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I f- I feel like we may be stumbling
2: upon a future episode where since we've established now that we've all at one time learned how to play the recorder, we could potentially have Palaver Plays Recorder episode <laughs> do a host of songs. <laughs> maybe
0: maybe we could do Supper's Ready on recorder. <laughs> Why don't Why don't we start with something maybe a little less long than that? Um, okay, you know. Okay, but but yeah, I, we can we can you know partly clever on recorder or something or or you know um, why don't we do something off uh, Tormato? Oh, we could do we could do Onward. That would probably be wonderful
2: on recorder.
1: I blame the generation before us. I, it's a trifecta of horror. They, they, they brought us frozen foods. <laughs> pharmaceuticals for everything and they brought us plastic recorders i mean really the last one being the most devilish
0: it, it truly is no so i i and, and you know it, it's, it's a nice sort of eye-opening thing you know, and here again why is tony levin arranging the recorder section here you know i, I just i i i need to like hang out with tony levin for a week that's it and, and just it was, find that out was all this stuff that was part of the tea, Tony.
2: What are those over there? Oh, those are my recorders.
1: <laughs> Employee of the month, man.
0: <laughs> that's really all I have to say about Indigo. I I love the song. I think it's it's beautiful. But you know, that's uh, you're 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 always you're always focused on these little aspects. Yeah. Well, at least I am.
1: Well, for the rest of the album, I'm dying to know what Bowie was doing
0: in the late seventies. <laughs> Shall we move on to animal magic? This is an this is an interesting one. I have a very conflicted relationship with animal magic. I find it to be wonderful and annoying at the same time. And I can never sort of reconcile myself one way or the other if I like this song or I hate this song. You're probably closer to hating it if you can't reconcile it. Yeah, but I see when I when I it's almost like Tormato, right? I walk around, and, and with all due respect to Kevin Mulrine and Tom Corcoran for using Tormato as, as an example here. But maybe by the time I'm done with this little exercise, they'll feel better. I walk around without listening to Tormato and can very easily convince myself <laughs> that Tormato's a piece of shit and I hate it. And yet, when I sit down and listen to Tormato specifically looking to call out those things I hate, it's not as awful as I would like. I hate Circus of Heaven. I hate Arriving UFO. And I hate the drum section of Release, Release. But other than that, it's really not bad. And, and I have the same thing. I I literally was sitting down this evening, probably just a couple hours ago, you know, specifically to, you know, I I played Animal Magic. I'm like, all right. We're going to figure this out. And it's like, oh, well, that's kind of cool. I kind of like that. Yeah, That's kind of fun. You know, this, okay, I'm into it. So I can't, when I want to do it, I can't, I can't get it done. It's kind of weird. But this is, this is one of those tracks where this is Todd Cochran playing. And, you know, one of the aspects I do like about it is the, the piano playing, which again, reminds me very forcibly of Vince Wilnick of the tubes, but <laughs> it's not Roy Bitten, It's, it's Todd Concurrent. so... I don't oh, know. there you go. How about we
1: pick the genre to the best of our ability for Animal Magic, because I'm hearing Honky Tonk mixed with New Wave. Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. See, I'm getting, like, this song was
2: found on the floor of <laughs> the recording sessions of the
1: first Foreigner album. <laughs> Like a swaggering American Yeah. Classic rock. Yeah, and they took
2: all the guitar out and just kinda like not the not the guitar solos, but like the really raunchy like, you know, hard rock guitar. And all that silly piano stuff, which is I'm gonna characterize it as silly piano and this it's a honky tonk <laughs> sort of yeah. And I'm not I'm not feeling the animal magic at all.
1: What is the sex song in the middle of Lamb Lies down on Broadway? Uh, What's the name of
0: that song? What does a boy to do? With, with his um, erogenous zones, yeah. Uh,
1: are you connecting this song to to that in some way? The line "I want to be a man with all that animal magic." So, uh, uh. hormonal going on here.
0: In that context, Ken, if we look at this right, the 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 one the one sort of hook line is "Look, I wave my wand, watch the rabbit disappear." Is is that just straight up sex? Double Entendre? Mm. I hadn't thought uh, of it that way. I thought he was literally talking about a magic trick, but.
2: it's so, just so so why it's lost on me, right? If this song is about sex in 1978, you want a song about sex? How about Fat Bottom Girls by Queen, right? Like <laughs> That.
0: Just uh, that, right to the point.
2: That just puts it out there. That's all the sexual angst and everything that you need. This this just doesn't do it for me. But I see your point, Ken. There's a there's a thread there.
1: Yeah, I'm reading the lyrics. Ah <sighs> doesn't look like we have to take it at face value for now, Joe. Okay. Until we get lore, it it's just a sex song.
0: It's just a sex song. Okay. Well there you go. Shake your wand, baby. Shake your wand. Make the rabbit disappear. And where it goes, well, you and guess. it works out because the next
2: song is—it's almost like a porn soundtrack. <laughs> ah.
0: <laughs> if we're going to, if we're, go- <laughs> if we're going to extend this out. Then is is uh, exposure? Then the animal magic—is is it about public sex? Is that is that where we're going to go? I just—I'm
2: just trying to block out the shitty drum sound and listen to Tony Levin
0: on this song on exposure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean exposure who knows. I anything I have to say about this song isn't great other than Tony Levin. You know? Well, it fantastic template for what's to come on Peter Gabriel
1: Three. I mean I mean yeah. Fripp doing the Friptronics. There's this noisy stuff going on. Either it's Frip or Larry Fest, I don't know which.
0: But the soundscape, I would say, is uh trend setting. And it'll be interesting as we get there, you know, just sort of looking ahead, because again, I think one and Paul, you would you would call this out. One and two are sort of closely related. Three and four are closely related, and then so is the agglomeration of all the lessons learned. All right. Well, I like exposure. I mean, I, I like it. I like it a lot. I just don't have anything I can say about it. Right. I mean, I was joking around about the the porn music.
2: But for me, this is like a breath of fresh air since DIY. Like, (laughs) I mean, I've been waiting for something to just, you know, bounce my head to and just like, can you you hit the nail on the head? This there's some stuff in here that I
1: think shows back up in in us. And from my brief, you know, kind of YouTubing of King Crimson, this is also a template for the. uh more crazy 70s, 80s, uh, Adrian Ballou area. There
0: you go. Uh, yep. And I love Adrian Ballou, by the way. At least I think I do. Let's put it that way.
1: Okay, you guys ready to jump to Shark?
0: Let's let's jump to Shark. <laughs> Flotsam and Jetsam. Is this a Tolkien reference? I ask you. No one gets it? Is it a reference to that? Yeah, it's a it's a chapter title in The Two Towers. Uh, I know that, but is oh. this song a reference to it? No, I doubt it. This song reads to me very much like uh, just a, a straightforward, broken-hearted song, I think. If only I could touch you like the wind can touch the sail. If only I could touch you, darling, now that words have failed. Oh, flotsam still afloat. Oh, jetsam thrown out of the boat. Oh, love, my love. Nothing here is what it seems. We both know it. Christ, you show it. Oh, oh, my love. I don't see any other way to interpret that.
1: Well, I mean, I brought-up song meeting, someone says it's about being famous and then not being famous, as artists feel their relationship with the audience is akin to the relationship with a woman, Someone else is suggesting kind of assault or rape, but I'm not picking up that vibe. I I think they're being a bit too dark. I think in the previous episode, I made a reference to Brit guys like John Lennon and Peter Gabriel uh, touching upon the American blues. And whether it's cultural appropriation or just bad form, I don't know how, how the 70s came to be this weird combination of styles. But, uh, you know, a lot of the Lennon hated hearing his voice. So he was double tracked or using lots of reverb. And I feel like Peter Gabriel with this odd reverb is, is, is flirting with that John Lennon sound.
0: And how much of this, you know, again, how much of this is Peter casting around for what he wants? How much of it is, you know, I, I don't know what, I haven't had a chance to look what, what production credits Robert Fripp had at this point? So, how much of this is Robert Fripp trying to figure out who Robert Fripp, the producer, is as well? O- or some combination of the two of them? I-, I don't know. But when you get like weird things like this, I-, I think you have to ask these questions. I don't know.
2: Yeah, it sounds very New York to me. The production does kind of just sound like. Just a handful of guys hanging out in the Netherlands, just putting some shit together. And sometimes it's really cool, and sometimes it's not as cool, but it just doesn't sound like a full-on produced
1: record for 1978. Is this a good segue into the sound of perspective?
0: Boy, I I feel like we're starting to to strip the gearbox here. (laughs) Just like from one thing to the next. Yeah, let's talk about the, the perspective, Ken.
1: <laughs> this is where Tim Capello comes in with the big-ass sax, totally out of form with right. the Peter Gabriel mold. Is this the first sax solo? Was there one in... I think he was doing something in Flotsam, or is it Sweet Home? Yeah, So so... I don't want to go too negative on Tim Capello. I just read that uh, he, he, he went into bodybuilding because he was shaking a heroin habit. So he became a meme. At least his image became a meme, superimposed with a careless whisper, which he didn't even play on, I don't think. You know, just that sexy sax guy from the 80s who inappropriately inserts himself into a situation and it was even parodied in Saturday Saturday Night Live. It's true that he's kind of inappropriately inserted into the Peter Gabriel catalog. I'm not sure what they were going for. Tim Capello became famous in the Lost Boys movie. He was covering a song by The Call. Yes. Who
2: can't remember that scene? That was a fun movie, The Lost Boys. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I mean, and even before that, Tim Capella was asking for it when he toured with Carly Simon. Apparently he wore some kind of leather collar and she drugged him around on stage with this leather collar. So, I mean, he got exactly what he was looking for. And I'm sure he was paid in the process and found all sorts of tours and work. But he is a meme and he, he's got to live with mm-hmm. that in his old age. Yeah. He, he just went far beyond the bounds of normal musicians and his appearance and uh brash personality
2: hey it's not a bad gig getting dragged around by your collar by carly simon just saying
0: (laughs) i have to guess this it doesn't even matter (laughs) This... This... this 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 song to me sounds like tv music it sounds like the the SNL intro music, honestly. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Time Yeah, when I say things sound New York and
1: Gabriel goes New York and Lennon goes New York, they're just grabbing your average session players circa nineteen seventy with big sacks and small guitars and blues sound, and you're just kind of throwing guys in a room and Okay, get it done before lunch. I mean, it's groovy, but
0: it's those weirdly soulless. So we'll have to call back to this and contrast this next week when we talk about how the saxophone is used on Peter Gabriel Three specifically, <laughs> but not tonight's conversation. So can we finish up then with Home Sweet Home? Oh, sorry. Home Sweet Home is the second uh, yes. place where, where Capello appears. Yes. Right, right. Now, Home Sweet Home, this is... Not necessarily musically, because I think these two songs, Perspective and Home Sweet Home, musically are sort of out of trend in the Peter Gabriel world. But lyrically, <laughs> this, this is first-rate Peter Gabriel. And it builds in a very, very straightforward and expected manner. Boy meets girl. Boy and girl get it on. Boy and girl have a baby, have to get married. So at this point, you're paralleling Bruce Springsteen's "The River," <laughs> <All> right? <laughs> they 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 get a house. Life doesn't get any better. Okay, we're still paralleling "The River," and at this point, Peter Gabriel says, "Oh, I came home and my wife had jumped out the window with her, with our son," which you're just like, "Holy fuck!" <laughs> that's that's terrible I mean You know Now we've diverted from the river And we're in a completely different area And you're like We're only at the, the, the end of the second verse What the hell's going to happen now This is catastrophic This is horrible In the third verse He gets the insurance money But he doesn't feel right in the house Because it's kind of dirty So he goes And he bets the money He goes to a casino And he bets the money And he hits it big so he buys a country house and he doesn't worry about the kid and the wife, which is a, a cynical, terrible perspective. But Peter Gabriel is going to love to give us this different perspective, you know, going forward. And it's not all the time. And it's funny because Peter Gabriel, by all accounts, is positive and forward moving and everything else. I hope I don't piss too many people off because I think. I think he's extraordinarily misunderstood on a fundamental way. But much like Stephen King, Peter Gabriel is not afraid to stand in the wrong corner of the room and show you what it looks like from there. Wow. Mm. I mean, is it safe to say that in Gabriel's story,
1: in his screenwriting, in his storytelling, people die? Just like his brother John
0: died in The Lamb. The wife dies in this story. Yeah. And and he doesn't shy away from that. You know, again, Stephen King is fundamentally misinterpreted in that everyone thinks, oh, he's just weird and creepy and he likes just gross stuff. He doesn't like gross stuff. I mean, he does not in the way that Quentin Tarantino, Quentin Tarantino, in my estimation, and again, this is all my perception on life. Quentin Tarantino is a phenomenal movie director. The way he builds a story and constructs suspense and will mess with the running order and the way he shows you things is absolutely fucking brilliant. But in my estimation, the big knock against Tarantino is this juvenile love of gore. At Mm -hmm. some point in a Tarantino movie, all of this wonderful cerebral storytelling is going to be just flushed down the toilet. Just so he can have someone's ear get cut off or their brains explode all over the room or whatever else. To me, he's so good at building the stories, it's completely unnecessary. Now, Stephen King has a little bit of that, and I've read a fair amount of King. I'm not going to say I've read everything, but I've read a fair amount of King, and my interpretation of what really makes Stephen King tick is not necessarily the gross stuff. Now, Stephen King is not afraid to talk about or illustrate the gross stuff. But what drives Stephen King is the behavior of normal people in extraordinary conditions. What does the normal brain do when presented with things that don't add up in the normal way? And that is what I think Peter Gabriel likes to do.
2: Wow. I like that parallel. Agreed.
0: Yeah. Take that for what it's worth. Joe, what is your
2: favorite Stephen King
0: book? Has to be Dark Tower 4, Wizard and Glass. Oh, that is a good one. Followed that is closely a one. by Wolves of the Kala. Wolves of the Kala is phenomenal. Yeah. The Stand is very good. The Stand is exceptional. The Dark Tower 7, there are aspects of that that I find profoundly moving, even though the overall narrative is a little wonky at times. But Wizard and Glass, I think, is just, the best.
2: When you were describing him,
0: the way he tells
2: the story and tells people in extraordinary situations, I thought of The Green Mile the and Green I Mile. thought of the JFK uh, oh, assassination. I forgot about 112263. God, that yeah. is
0: so good.
2: Those aren't horror genres at all. No. But yet, he, he dips into those dark recesses of the human brain and the human psyche. It's an interesting parallel with uh, Peter Gabriel uh, here. I I don't know that I would have ever
1: drawn that. It's quite poignant. Oh, my. As an outsider, where should I go if I wanted to read some Stephen King? Would I just start into the Dark Tower series, or would you? I'll, I'll tell you what. I think the first Stephen King book I ever
2: read was The Gunslinger, and it's uh, it's fantastic.
0: And I would agree. The, the Gunslinger, it, it... Keep in mind, The Gunslinger was written when Stephen King was a very, very young man. So in in certain fundamental aspects, it's not going to line up with the rest of the work. Like He's much better as a writer when he got back to the Dark Tower, but it is a very, in my estimation, and I think Paul shares this, it's a very concise and compelling entryway in. I'm going to go out on a limb because it hasn't aged for me quite as well. But if you want a, you know, another example of early, but more quote unquote standard king, I think Salem's Lot is an exceptional mm. vampire story. Mm. Salem's
2: Lot and The Standard, the two king novels on my list, because after Wolves of the
0: callia I, I always wanted to go back and read Salem's Lot. Oh, and, yeah. And um, I never have. And and stay away from insomnia at all costs. Well,
1: Paul, how far were you into the Dark Tower series when you got the idea for this podcast?
2: It was Joe, and it was, I think he had read it three times by the time. Uh... <laughs> <At least. laughs> My favorite story is the seventh installment of the Dark Tower, the, the final installment. You know, it was released on whatever day. And I think like a week later, I went out and bought it. And I think I called Joe. And I said, "Oh, I just, I just picked up The Dark Tower. Did, did you get it?" And he goes, "Yes, I finished it last night. And it's like <laughs> seven hundred pages long." <laughs> oh my!
0: So that yeah. that would be my recommendation for uh, for Stephen King. But it does sort of bring to a close, I think this this record. And like I said, it's not exceptional, but it, I don't hate it. I can listen to it easily. Let's put it that way, and I can enjoy it. It's not a record that I go, hmm, "I need to listen to Scratch today."
1: I'm sorry. I cannot control myself. I'm just uh, jumping to Steve Lillywhite. There's something happening for Peter. He's clearly going in a different direction with production. So our next episode should be pretty exciting.
0: Oh, I think it will be.
2: This is one of those episodes where, you know, we we get together to talk about an album and then we all talk about it. And then like, sometimes you want to go back and just like listen to that album all over again. This is not one of those times.
1: Oh, I'm
2: very I'm very happy to to get like
0: behind us.
2: (laughs) I I can't wait to go listen to
1: uh, Intruder. I really can't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're hitting this orgasmic era where he really finds himself. Yeah. And he finds himself within the pressures of Punk
0: and New Wave. And he looks the part looks the part that that's an interesting aspect ken i don't know you know i i I tried to do a little sort of background searching for for this record and i i just i didn't have necessarily all the time and i want to say it was on the peter gabriel the official website but there were some photographs of peter around this time i think there was one when he was in the vocal booth recording and, and maybe some other one for all that you think about Peter Gabriel and all that you think you know about Peter Gabriel and, and, and whatever persona he did or didn't have at this point, when they were recording this album, based on these photographs, he looked exceptionally normal. Like you joke about about uh, David Gilmore and his, his, his grandfather routine. You know, Peter Gabriel looked like, you know, a, a dad routine. You know, he had just a a completely nondescript haircut completely nondescript clothes you know there was nothing exceptional about him in in the the pictures that document the recording of this record which i just find to be interesting one of the things that i did sort of come across and again i i didn't get too deep into it was the idea of of these these album covers apparently peter felt uncomfortable with photographs of himself and being you know, captured by the camera being in front of the camera, and so that apparently gave rise to some of these interpretations of how to mask that a little bit and and I just find that to be interesting.
1: Well, he and, makes up for it in the sledgehammer video, where it's nothing but his
0: face, nothing but his face his face well I, and, and by the time so comes out, Peter Gabriel. You know, if you look at Peter Gabriel at that time, it's like, it's like early Steve Hogarth. It's, it's the sex symbol Peter Gabriel, right? And, and it's not long after that that he'll shave his head and, and, you know, get rid of all of that. But in that particular moment when image was everything, Peter captured that perfectly.
1: You know, it's hard. If I Google Peter Gabriel bald, I get the current Peter Gabriel. But there is that brief time where he was baller with very short hair in the late 70s and he was i, I want to say i don't know looking like gary newman i don't know definitely channeling the new wave and, and and punk vibe
0: i'm so glad you brought in this this new wave thing right because this is part of the the amalgam that's going to you know we always that that's that's going to you know, catapult Peter Gabriel forward, and it's it's interesting. I like it. I understand, Paul, your feeling of sort of relief at being past this and, and being able to move into the meat of the sandwich, as it were. There are important building blocks here, and it's it's interesting and fun, I think, to watch. Peter sort of grow and and figure out, you know, what makes Peter tick and how it, it's going to to manifest itself. And and I think we're going to have a lot to talk about in the next episode. I look forward to to where we go for the next couple of episodes. And then eventually, I think round about the time we get into So is when uh, Solo Fish will come into our combined hmm. um, timeline. Okay. So that will be fun yeah. to sort of bounce back and forth at that point. And and bring something else in but we're we're setting the table as it were and and seeing you know presumably everything that we're talking about now is going to influence a younger Derek Dick into becoming the artist that he will become as always guys thanks for coming along cheers it's been awesome We hope you enjoyed this episode of progressive palaver as always we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you and look forward to your thoughts comments feedback and questions you can reach out to us on instagram facebook or twitter we are at progpala on all of those or search for progressive palaver progressive palaver is available for subscription and download on apple podcast google podcast spotify or presumably anywhere you do find your podcast and we are as always hosted on soundcloud so until next time thanks for listening Is that part of the Gilmore magic? All three on, I believe, was his secret
1: sauce. He had his strat modified. You know, there are three pickups, and you can only have the singles or two at a time, two consecutive, but you cannot have all three right. unless you get the mod. Interesting. Roger, how many pickups do
3: you have on right now? <laughs> <laughs> oh.